Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with public theologian Serene Jones. There's a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the amphitheater this morning. As we have done for most of the week, we are starting a little early in order to accommodate our friends from On Being as they record this week's conversations for broadcast at a later date. We know that you will sometimes take leave for various reasons, other programming and other needs. We ask that you do so as quietly as possible so that our broadcast is flawless as it's aired later. Before our lecture, we do have a few announcements. If you have seen the morning programs this week, you know that our format is slightly different. Our usual audience Q&A period will begin around 11.35 and run for 10 to 15 minutes. We will then toss it back to our guests for the closing 10 minutes of their conversation. As usual, you may submit questions through our ushers who will circulate shortly before the Q&A and who can provide slips of paper and pencils. Or you may also submit questions via Twitter using the hashtag CHQ2019. You you will have a brief opportunity to meet this morning's interviewee, Serene Jones, immediately following the lecture on the back porch of the amphitheater. Please note that out of the respect for her schedule, we will limit the number of people who we can admit to the porch. Dr. Jones will also host a book signing at 1.15 today at the Authors Alcove, adjacent to the Chautauqua Bookstore, where you can also purchase her book if you have not done so already. At 3.30 today at the Hall of Philosophy, playwright, writer, and professor Sarah Rule will present Letters from Max, a book of friendship, the book she co-authored with her late student, Max Ritvo. Letters from Max is this week's selection of the Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle. Ms. Rule will sign copies of her works on the porch of the Literary Arts Center at Alumni Hall immediately following her presentation. Finally, out of respect for this morning's speakers and audience members around you, and so that you don't make an unwelcome guest appearance on an upcoming national broadcast, please silence your cell phones and refrain from using flash photography. This concludes the morning announcements. Support for this week's programs is provided by the Oliver and Mary Langenberg Lectureship Fund. Additional support for today's program is provided by the Robert Jacobs Memorial Lectureship Fund and the Richard W. and Jeanette D. Collenberg Lectureship Fund. The late Bob Jacobs spent his career in business, becoming the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. He and Louise Tice met toward the end of World War II and quickly became married. Louise was a Red Cross social worker and Bob an Army Air Force pilot. Louise Jacobs created the lectureship in 2004 in her husband's memory to give back to the place where they spent and treasured time together. All of Bob and Louise's children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren have become Chautauquans. 
After visiting Chautauqua as a child, Richard Collenberg later brought his family, and they have come back almost every summer for 53 years. He was a writer, teacher, and Presbyterian minister, educated at Harvard and Union Theological Seminary, where he wrote his thesis under <laughs> Reinhold Niebuhr. Jeanette Dawson Collenberg has degrees from Wellesley College, Union Theological Seminary, and Columbia University and enjoyed a career culminating with 12 years as Executive Director of Citizens Union of the City of New York. She remains deeply active in the life of this institution. Please join me in thanking the Langenberg, Jacobs, and Collenberg families for their remarkable legacies of service to Chautauqua. Our guide this week, and once again this morning, is our friend Krista Tippett, host of the popular public radio program On Being. Today's conversation will be broadcast on the show at a later date. Joining Krista in conversation today is the Reverend Dr. Serene Jones, the 16th president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. The first woman to head the 182-year-old institution, Dr. Jones occupies the Johnston Family Chair for Religion and Democracy. She is a past president of the American Academy of Religion, which annually hosts the largest gathering of scholars of religion. A highly respected scholar and public intellectual, Dr. Jones came to Union after 17 years at Yale University, where she was the Titus Street Professor of Theology and the Divinity School and chair of the university's program in women, gender, and sexuality studies. Dr. Jones is the author of several books, including Trauma and Grace, and most recently, her memoir called Call It Grace, Finding Meaning in a Fractured World. She received her bachelor's from the University of Oklahoma, where she graduated Phi Beta Kappa, her Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School, and her doctorate from Yale University. She is an ordained minister in both, both the Christian Church, which is Disciples of Christ, and the United Church of Christ. We are so pleased to host her this week on her second visit to Chautauqua. Please join me in welcoming Serene Jones and Krista Tippett. Well, happy Thursday. It's lovely to be here for a fourth morning. Um, tomorrow morning, I'm going to be on the other side of the conversation. And, you know, what I, I hope you've had an experience this week of uh, why I love conversation and what I've learned is I love being on both sides of it. Um, I think we're familiar, and I know a place like Chautauqua is familiar uh, with the phenomenon which uh, Richard Blanco and I spoke about here yesterday morning. It's true of professional writers, it's true of writing in a journal, it's true of writing a short story for yourself, um, that when we write, we often learn what we think. We, we understand what we knew without knowing it or being able to put words around it. And my experience is that conversation has the same uh, capacity to surprise us and to be a source of revelation. Um, it's a slightly different process, but the same thing that in in attempting to put words around something important in the presence of another person in a conversation, um, people say things that surprise themselves. And that's such a wonderful thing to be part of that discovery. And that's also why I love radio and podcasting is radio 2.0. 
um, uh, because it is at one and the same time something very human and intimate happens, but then it becomes communal the minute anybody else presses play or turns on their radio. Um, so one thing I would like to say today, yesterday I encouraged people to stay. I know that there are reasons to leave um, at the Q&A and that there, you have many other things to do, but um, the, the, the conversation, the container of the conversation will go to noon. Um, and after the Q&A, we do come back up here and finish it out. And, uh, and I never do this. I never tell the person I'm interviewing anything about what's going to happen. Um, but because this is Chautauqua and this is your format, I'll say that we're going to end talking about love and whether love can be a public good. Um, so that's just a little teaser to entice you to stay if you can. Um, you know, this week, these first three days, we didn't take on the subject of grace um, in a very linear, head-on way. What I, what I have invited here this week are people who, for me, evoke and embody all the nuance and dimensionality of the notion of grace. And I feel like they have populated our imaginations and our minds with an ecosystem of words and stories and ways of reflecting and living that make the notion of grace real um, in 21st century lives. But I have to say that Serene Jones, who I've held for last, has has rock-solid grace credentials. Um, I didn't realize this until I looked. She's written three books, and I'm going to read them to you, and you get to see what is the common denominator. Uh, Feminist Theory and Christian Theology, Cartographies of Grace in the year 2000, Trauma and Grace, Theology in a Ruptured World, and most recently in 2019, her beautiful book, Call It Grace. <laughs> so she was, you won't be surprised, the first person who came to mind when we had this invitation and the subject for the week was grace. And not only that, um, Serene's daughter, uh, Karis, is named Karis, and Karis is the Greek word for grace. <laughs> right, so here we are. Um, you know, I was reading a, an interview someone else did of you, and the question was, a classic form of Christian memoir is, I once was lost, but now am found, which is also the hymn, the context in which I think the word grace comes for so many of us most readily. Are we okay with, can everybody hear still with the, with the rain? Biblical rains once again. Are we okay? All right. Um, so someone asked you, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Does your story translate into any version of that? Do you remember this? Yes. And you yes. said, I once was a happy but confused Christian child, and now I, am, now I am a wiser, still fundamentally happy, yet humbled Christian leader. Humbled by life and by my own understanding of the complexities, horrors, and gifts of the Christian faith. I wonder if you would, um, Serene, just how would you start to begin to, to describe the religious and spiritual background of your childhood, which as you've, um, you've described it, I, I, I was watching a speech you gave at the Disciples of Christ annual convention that you came from a staunchly disciples household. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So you're right. Uh, in, in writing, we discover so much about what we think and who we are. And in writing the book, Call It Grace, Okay, I'm not going to say anything else from here on out. No. Um, <laughs> um, I, sat out, I started to write a book that was explaining theology to people who didn't have theology backgrounds, and I discovered that I couldn't talk about theologians without telling the story of my childhood. Yeah. And that's where it begins. And I grew up in a thoroughgoingly Christian church disciples of Christ's world. My father was a minister and a theologian. Our church was the center of our life. And I had the very, I think, wonderful advantage of growing up in a progressive disciples community. So it was where I learned from the time I could walk about social justice and racism and what it meant to be church. Um, and I also there learned about grace. And uh, it was from the time I heard the word God, I thought God means love and love is universal and we are all loved. That's grace. Mm -hmm. And your father was a theologian and a, eventually a seminary dean. So you yes. really did grow up, yeah. you know, in the bosom of the church at every level of your, of your family life. Yes. Um, there's a lot of talk these days in the world about the difference between what is spiritual and what is religious. But Serene, the distinction that, it, that, is pa that Serene is passionate about is the distinction between religion and theology. And um, I actually want you to read um, page XI. <laughs> um, just, just to get a sense of, of how you start to talk about what theology is. And then we're going to talk about just go more deeply into that as we go into what grace is in a theological context. Where it begins theology. Just do the first two paragraphs there. Where it says theology, not religion? No, no, no. Um, theology is a place and a story. Yes, okay. And that, 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 just this is really about you. This is, you know, how you start telling your story too. So this really was when I sat down to write the book, the first line that came out of my fingers onto the computer keys. Theology is a place and a story. Theology is the place and the story you think of when you ask yourself about the meaning of your life, of the world, of the possibility of God. For me, that place sits windswept but defiant on a plain in Oklahoma, a spot of red, dry earth in the middle of a farm on the outskirts of the small town of Billings. It has a population of one, a spirit, mine, who has dwelled there as far back as my imagination reaches. I go there again and again to this dusty piece of land to remember what is true and to find God. I go there to find my story, my theology. I go there to be born again to be made whole, to unite with what I was, what I am, and what I will become. So we, we talk a lot 
um, we're rediscovering the power of story in this culture. And that's important, and we've done that this week as well. Um, you also say this about the move that theology makes, which is it's not the mere telling of our stories mm -hmm. and our truths, that, that we tell them and we can get up and tell them the next day and the day after that. You said we can tell our stories till the day is done and then wake up tomorrow and tell more of them. That's not a challenge for us. The challenge is using our stories to explore the questions, so what? Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, uh, the particular world of theology that you grew in and that formed you is you, you call um, prairie theology. So you and I um, have known each other for a number of years, and one thing that's really important that we have in common is that we both grew up in Oklahoma. Um, Serene grew up in the small town of Billings, and I grew up in the small town of Shawnee. Um, both of us steeped in church, um, yours progressive disciples of Christ, mine conservative Southern Baptist. So there's a way in which our, the religiosity of our childhoods was similar in ways in which it was very different. Um, but I, that feels like such an important thing for us to dwell with this morning and draw out, because we've talked this week um, we speak so much in our culture now about all the different ways we've divided ourselves up, all the boundaries that feel more and more uncrossable, and, and uh, there's red and blue, and there's rural and there's urban, and there's north and south and west. And um, speaking out of Oklahoma, you know, I live in Minnesota now, you live in New York City, we're in upstate New York. Um, also feels like an important conversation to have in our life together right now. Um, I do want to read, you know, you, you talked about, yeah, the theology of your childhood and Reverend Larry, yes. who preached about greed. Um, you talked about one day, one Sunday, Reverend Larry preached that the sin of greed is the greatest of all. And then he moved on to talk about how the early disciples had shared everything, giving to each according to their need. And he said, I know it's not popular to say so these days, but Jesus' early disciples were, he leaned forward to confidentially share with the congregation at the end of the sermon, they were communists. <laughs> My kid brain had no idea what communists meant, but I got the bigger point. We were supposed to share what we had. For me, that meant giving 20 cents of my weekly dollar allowance to the church as my tithe against poverty. And something that, um, you know, that might surprise a lot of people in this country, that that is a kind of Christian upbringing. Um, and also, uh, that the world of Oklahoma, which I think is, we know as a red state now, if, if there's a kind of quick way to describe it, um, had that very complicated moral and ethical um, thinking and teaching in its DNA. So tell some of that story. It's part of your story. It's part of our story as a country. Yeah. And one of the reasons I decided to start the book with the story of my family coming to Oklahoma is it is a microcosm of all of the conflicts and contradictions of our country today. It's all there. So my um, father's um, mother, her family came on a wagon train from Pennsylvania, and they were Sooners. And they, they got on horses and grabbed the flag and homesteaded in Billings. Um, my uh, father's father's family 
came from Tennessee on the first train to stop in the small town of Okima, um, and they were running from the law. Um, my, uncle had, my uncle had killed a man and, and stolen his horse, and stealing a horse was worse than killing a man because it, it destabilized the whole community. So aunts, uncles, everyone had to get on the horse and come, yeah. um, get on the wagon train and come because of that horse. And so I use this sort of meeting of these two different worlds, one this staunch, staunchly disciple homesteading couple and these uh, renegade outlaws. And in that mix um, also enters my great-great-grandfather, Redmond Brown, who uh, was Cherokee, whose family came on the Trail of Tears, the mass genocidal march um, from North Carolina, where my great-great-great-grandmother, Mary Brown, never left her, her home, actually, in Cherokee, North Carolina. Um, and then, in the midst of all that, I tell the story of this small town of Okima, which I grew up going to very often. It embodied the sort of birth of the state. Um, as I grew older, I learned, added to all of that complexity, the history of the terrible race riots in yeah. Tulsa, where uh, uh, hundreds of people were killed and the entire African-American community was devastated by fire, turpentine dropped by airplanes. But then it all sort of comes together for me in a, in a very um, troubling story that I think is key to our nation, one that literally knocked the breath out of me. I still remember to this day when it, when it hit me. Um, I was in a classroom at Yale leading a search committee. I was the chair and for a new position in African-American religious thought. And the person was giving the lecture. Behind him were pictures from postcards of lynchings. Um, and as I sat there looking at these postcards, suddenly one dropped. And it was of a young woman um, lynched from a bridge. Um, you couldn't see in the frame her son who was next to her, who had also been lynched. And at the bottom it said, Laura Nelson, 1911, it's hard to even talk about, it said, Okima, Oklahoma. And, and my world just inside me imploded. Um, there were maybe 300 people in the town in 1911, and two-thirds of them were my family. All right. So there was no way that my family did not know or most likely participate in. But it's not a story that had been passed down. And if they had not participated, they would have told the story. Mm -hmm. So there's that. So there's America. There, well, there right. That, and, and um, you know, Woody Guthrie was from Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. And you tell some stories also about Oklahoma that I learned after I left home, not, not in, at home, that who remembers this? That in 1914, seven years after Oklahoma's official formation, there were 175 registered socialists elected to state and local offices. It was the most socialist state in the nation. <laughs> and what people don't know is a lot of those were Southern Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. No, it's because true. it was a merger of, yes. of Christianity and the gospel. Mm -hmm. And um, so all the complexity yeah. of this country in microcosm. 
your distinction between religion and theology, you, um, you kind of illustrate also with a defining moment where you were at Christian camp in the summer, which, you know, I didn't know that anybody in the world grew up without going to Christian camp in the summer. This was a shock to me when I left home. Um, and you were singing a Woody Guthrie song, um, which, do you, can you sing, do you know those stanzas or can you sing, can you say them? You don't have to sing it. I'm not going to make you sing it. Um, do you have, it, do you have it in the book? Um, and, yes. And, the, and it's This Land is Your Land, which is, a, which is a song also, I think, whether you went to Christian mm-hmm. camp or not, you probably grew up singing if you were born 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you learned, you read the, you sang the first verse, and then you sang the second and third verses, which also tells this complicated story of mm-hmm. us. Yes, that was the sitting around the campfire and then hearing this familiar song with two verses. It's like singing a beloved hymn and suddenly discovering that you'd only been singing a fraction of the song and the hard parts were lopped off. So these were the verses. So first we sang, this land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the New York Island. I've never sung in public before, but... (laughs) (laughs) This land is made for you and me. Yes, yes, you sing it too. Yeah. And then the guitar player, a scruffy kid from the late 60s, sang this, saying, as I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said, no trespassing. But on the other side, it didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. And then, and then he sings, And in the shadow of the steeple, I saw my people. By the relief office, I seen my people. And they stood there hungry, and I stood there asking, is this land made for you and me? Yeah. Isn't that stunning? Um, So what I want to talk about is how theology can speak to us and accompany us as we, you know, one of the ways you've talked about, you are, you are upholding this, this long tradition in American life of public theology. And one reason, one, one of the things I value about Chautauqua is that Chautauqua was a center of public theology in the mid-20th century when this tradition was very robust. And Union Seminary is a place that has cultivated this lineage of public theology um, and one way you could talk about the animated question of public theology for us in this century is how to tell the full story of our time and walk through it with grace, becoming the people in the world we long to be. You've talked about a calling that is there for all of us now to be midwives to the world that wants to be born. Um, you know, and, and even to talk about, say, what does theology have to do with and what is, what is the theological language and questioning, it's not a fashionable question, it, you know, it's, um, and, and the language of, of grace can be, you know, could seem wishy-washy, yes. and you really want to claim this as something mm-hmm. muscular yes. and absolutely meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it, as I wrote this book, it became clearer to me 
that good theology absolutely must be public theology. What is theology if it's not talking about our collective lives and the meaning and purpose of our lives and how we're supposed to live together and who God is in ways that are part of our conversation together? And so for me, that means that theology is always very personal. If you believe in the grace of God, uh, for me, it's the notion that we are saints and sinners. That sin part is really has, I think, important both personal and collective implications. But if you, don't, if you can't make personal sense out of that, it doesn't have any meaning. If it doesn't weave into the story of your life, it's just meaningless chatter. Mm-hmm. And similarly, if you really believe this stuff about grace, if you really believe God loves everybody and the world and forgives ultimately in mercy everybody, it profoundly affects your politics. It affects how you engage everybody, how you look at them, how you walk through life. Mm-hmm. It's thoroughly political. And in both the intimate and the political ways, it's public. Right. Um, I, you know, sin again is, well, we'll, we'll talk about sin in a minute. I, I think my favorite um, definition of that, of like reintroducing that as a thing you can talk about is Reinhold Niebuhr's, you know, saying, if you don't believe in sin, just open up the paper today. <laughs> if you don't believe there's something to this. Um, so you, you, do, you do bring the personal and the political, the intimate and civilization together as you think and walk. Um, you also are accompanied by this lineage of great theology and great theologians. Um, I first uh, encountered you. We actually were at Yale Divinity School at the same time, but we never met because Serene was the star, the rising star, doctoral student, new professor, and I was just a lowly student. And I remember walking past the systematic theology lecture, and you were so impassioned about Karl Barth and John Calvin. And John Calvin is really important to you. And um, of course, it's worth saying that, um, as you point out, that that you know, while Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Reformed Christians, and Evangelical communities are the groups that most openly acknowledge their debt to Calvin's theology, the founding theology of Episcopalians, Methodists, and Baptists also emerged, as you say, from leaders who eagerly drank from those same Calvinist waters. And you've said, it is impossible to understand even the most basic things about Christianity in America without plumbing the depths of the theological book where much of it originated. So I wonder if you would just introduce John Calvin as a voice for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say that as, as people have read this book, and there's many d- quite dramatic stories in it, but time and again I hear that the thing they find the oddest is that I actually like John Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I do, I do. I think his theology is, is profound, and it, it is at the root of the story we tell ourselves So um, I wrote my dissertation on John Calvin um, and became interested on Calvin after I had returned from a year of uh, living in India and then in the Philippines in the midst of the Civil War um, under Marcos. And I suddenly found in John Calvin after that experience a writer who was trying to engage a community of people who felt besieged and oppressed 
Quite literally, there was a war taking place against French Protestants. They were fleeing to Geneva, and John Calvin was trying to give them sustenance. He was trying to tell them a story about God that would allow them to get out of bed in the morning, which changed everything about how Calvin sounded to me. And the story he tells is, is, is complex, but it's beautiful. I describe it as, it's like falling through the pages of the institutes, it's like falling through layers and layers of Christianity and hitting the bedrock of American Christian thought. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to interrupt this for one minute. We have a medical emergency here for Peggy Barrett. Peggy Barrett, please report to the street house at the rear of the Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. I hope everything is okay. Yeah. So, um, so it, it, he believed uh, in the sovereignty of God, which for him meant that there is nothing that we can say or do or live or places we can go or interactions we can have that don't unfold before God, and that God sees us and loves us, and that's why we're here. And the complicated character of human life is that on the one hand, God creates us to be glorious, gives us powers of intellect and love and connection and art and we're we're capable of amazing, extraordinary accomplishments. And yet right next to this glorious side is this weird propensity that human beings have to choose what is not good for them, to choose evil, to sin, to close their eyes to the love of God and their own glory, and to become harmful and self-destructive and destructive of others. And life is the struggle of those two realities within us. Yeah. And they never go away. It's not like you get over the sin part and become glorious. It's not like you're ever only sinful. Uh, that is the complex nature of who we are. And out of that comes basic concepts in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, in addition to basic concepts in U.S. Christianity. Like what? Um, well, the notion that we are both saints and sinners. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that too often nowadays, churches are having contests to see which is the most saintly and forgetting the fact that the sinner part is true for people in the church just as much as is true for everyone that else. That saints are also sinners. Saints are also yes. sinners. And yes. the sin part of the story of the U.S. and our own personal stories and our Christian faith is not something we want to talk about. And Calvin pushes that. He won't let go of that broken part of who we are as part of the story we tell. Right. And it's about, and self-knowledge is in, it, yeah. in and of itself a spiritual discipline. Yes. yes, you can't begin to know God unless you're going to be honest enough to look inside yourself and acknowledge those two parts. Yeah. And in acknowledging, acknowledging them, comes a sense of awe that you even exist. And for Calvin, that was gratitude that flowed forth from that recognition, and that was the beginning of faith. Yeah. So let's, for the next few minutes, um, talk about, I want to I draw you as a theologian, as a public theologian, on the challenge of life in our time. Um, life in this country, 
um, and how a, a theological point of view, and perhaps John Calvin will continue to walk with us, or some of the other theologians who you walk with. Um, you know, one thing you've written about, I mean, just how do we come at this moment through a theological lens? One of the things you've thought a lot about is the notion of trauma, and trauma and grace. And I feel like as much as we analyze and investigate and try to name what's going on in our world, there's this huge way in which this is a moment of human trauma all around, whether you are on the prairie or in the inner city or in the Appalachian Hills. Um, so, so how, how would you want to bring that into relief as something we can work with directly as opposed to something that's always going on beneath the surface and that we cover up with political fights and alienation, really, fear? Well, one of the things uh, that I learned uh, from life, but it came to the fore in writing the book on trauma, is that not just individuals, but whole communities undergo trauma. And that one of the characteristics of trauma is the deep human desire to repress it and to not deal with the story of the harms that have happened. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the truth of the matter is with individual and collective trauma is that the harm haunts you, haunts your dreams as an individual, haunts your collective unconscious as a society until you tell the story to you face the truth of the horrors that have happened. And I think what is happening in our nation today is, is all of the harms of the past have come up to claim us all at once. And they're not going to let us go until we take the stride of reckoning with them. Mm -hmm. But we're terrified of doing that. Um, and I think in my understanding of grace, has allowed me to think a lot about why for white people that's scary, um, for myself. Uh, and that has sort of led me on a journey into the construction of whiteness in the United States. When we, when we talk about chattel slavery and the history of racism, we spend a lot of time talking about what slavery was like and how African-American identity got constructed, but we spend very little time talking about how white people became white. That had to be made up too. Mm -hmm. like your Cherokee grandmother, great-great-grandmother, mm -hmm. what was it that, in, that when the Jim Crow laws came into be, being in Oklahoma, they declared themselves as pure white, yes. right? And at that, there was a moment that you actually have, you know, that's, that's yeah. unusual that you, and you have the pictures and you have the documentation and you yeah. know the story yeah. at which they became, and yeah, that was the language, pure white. Yes. From one generation to the next and it was, it was a leap of the imagination and it was a kind of formal process. Yes, we were, they, in Okima, when Jim Crow came down, um, they owned property, but because Redmond Brown was Cherokee, they couldn't own it unless he signed a paper saying that he was not Cherokee, that he was pure white. Okay. And so, you know, we have the actual story yeah. of whiteness happening in our family. Um, but, you know, what, what's interesting to me too, though, is 
as I've talked to people about the story of Okima and the lynching, is I think that in the stories of white supremacy, liberal white people today want to put that in the past and, and not reckon with how close it is yeah. to who we are now. And for me, I wasn't allowed that dangerous innocence yeah. once I saw that postcard. But I think for this moment in time, just the courage to be honest. And the second thing I'd say about this political moment, and it's a deeply theological claim, is <clears throat> I honestly think at the heart of our nation's turmoil is the fact that people honestly do not believe that we are all equal and loved equally and equally valued. They just don't believe that. Mm. And that, cro that crosses the aisle. Yeah. That crosses the aisle. And, and that's a theological issue. It's a theological issue. And I also feel like it's something where on our scientific frontiers, we're actually understanding yes. better that it's natural. Mm -hmm. Which on the one hand is good to know, and it becomes a form of power to say, now we know this, that this is what our brains naturally do, especially when we're afraid. Um, and we can change, right? It's that self-knowledge that Calvin calls you to. Um, a couple of things that this brings to mind for me, um, in your trauma work, um, you talk about you know, that grief, the, the terrible things that happen to us, the losses or the things that we have to acknowledge. Um, they don't, they don't, we don't, this whole American thing of resolution, that's not a theological move and it's not actually reality based. But you say there's something that can happen when grief becomes mourning, mm -hmm. that that is a different move. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, in trauma, when um, one is able to come to grips with what happened, not resolve it, not fix it, most traumas live with us in, in indelible ways. Um, but to move from grief, from mourning, is to move uh, from a place of sheer loss to a place of acknowledging the loss and in mourning the permanence of the loss, it can't be fixed, but also it creates a space in mourning for you to make sacred the pain so that the rest of your life is transformed by it. It, it allows the possibility of, of a future, mourning does. Right. Pure grief just locks you in. Right. In the, in the eternal present. Um, and mourning gives us a chance for collectively. Right. And I think that also, boy, to get to the subtleties and the nuance of this is, it's also possible in this moment where we have like varying degrees of awakening to, you might say, our national sins. Um, 
that to just decide to grieve it is also not to go far enough. Mm-hmm. Yes. That that's yes. also a way to get locked into it or to, right. right? Or you can grieve it, you can be ashamed of it, you can be embarrassed by it, you can be horrified by it. Um, but until those things are transformed into um, what I call mourning, which is the sort of recognition of it in a space that still allows for a future, that grief, that denial, that shame, just stops the possibility of actually engaging and transforming mm-hmm. the things that created those horrible conditions. Right. And we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And until we can get unstuck and that shame needs to kind of loosen its grip or that, you know, denial mm-hmm. um, about, about that past, as if somehow, it's a strange fear that somehow if we come to grips with that hor- those horrors, we're somehow going to die from them. And, and that's simply not true. Mm-hmm. You're set free, actually, by the telling of the truth. That was true for me even in my own personal family story. Right. And you can move into a place where it is something that, that you can find a, a place for in your soul and in your heart, but not in such a way that it immobilizes you, but it actually propels you into the future through love. So this will be the moment to invite you to send questions. A um, couple of other theological notions. Um, something, it's so repentance. It's another great theological word. And the Greek root of it is very active and visual, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's yes. about... Stopping in your tracks and walking in another direction. One thing that you said is that repentance does not require individual culpability, and also that individual culpability is not enough, that repentance is also about how a community owns and understands the reverberations of its its actions and its realities. I mean, repentance, I, it's a powerful word, um, as you said, and it really means to sort of walk in a different direction. It means to do it differently. It's not just a change of heart. No, or it's also not just saying, oh, that was horrible, I'm so sorry. You know, it's much more than I'm sorry, or, you know, that makes me so uncomfortable and I'm sad that happened. It's really saying, that is horrible and this is the path that we're going to walk on together to fix it. Not fix it in the sense of cover up the past, but fix it so that the horrors that hold us don't keep happening. Mm-hmm. And so that, that active, grasping, walking towards a different future has to be done together. It's not just me deciding, oh, Serene, now that you've come to grips with your horrible past, you're going to walk out there and fix it and walk in the right direction. Because the, the things that bind us are not just ours alone, but they're ours as a whole society. So if we don't walk collectively, we're not getting at the chains, the sins that hold us down. Um, one of the... Well, let me just do it. One of the things you say is that grace is more original than sin. And given everything we've been talking about, how does that work? 
Um, well, this is where the, the grace part becomes so important because in my theology, and this is part of what we need to reclaim, it is so deep in Christianity, is that we may be glorious and sinful, but God's love is bigger than that. So the reason we in repentance walk in this direction is not because as sinners, um, you know, we've repented and um, because we don't want to go to hell and want to go to heaven, we're going to walk that way. Um, it's because you actually recognize that the truth of love points you in that direction. Grace is more original because grace wins. Our sinfulness is not the final word about who we are. And that means that in this theology, which is, you know, suffused through Christianity, and we suppress it, is that the love of God, the love of the universe, spirit, however you describe it, is stronger and more powerful and persistent, larger, greater, more eternal than anything we do. That's grace. And that's the grace that changes how we experience everything. And, you know, I, I guess the question, how do I want to ask this question? I, it was a much simpler thing in the mid-20th century for a Reinhold Niebuhr to say things like that mm -hmm. in a country that was overwhelmingly Christian, overwhelmingly Protestant, and for it to be clear that this kind of thinking and reflecting and this kind of wisdom um, about the human condition as much as about whoever or whatever God is belonged in the center of our life together. And I, I know this is a question you ask me, like, how do you talk about um, why it's not just, I think, still right, but, but really necessary that public theology also find its place in our world? And, and also, how is that going to be different from Niebuhr and Tillich and Bonhoeffer, all those people who were once upon a time also at Union Theological mm -hmm. Seminary? Mm -hmm. Well, they all share several things, but they had come from German background. They're white men. They existed in a certain generation and were influenced by the same philosophers and the sort of underlying German existentialism. <clears throat> and today that conversation um, has to be um, done in an interfaith context because Christianity's refusal to engage other religions seriously and with grace and graciousness is one of its greatest sins that we can no longer allow. Um, and it has, to be, it has to be done by all of the voices, um, not just the white male voices that, that made Union famous in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah. It's the voice of James Cone and Beverly Harrison and Dolores Williams um, and Gary Dore. It's the voices um, of Greg Schneider and Jerusalem, Buddhist and Muslim. Uh, it's those voices together, and I think and this is perhaps the most radical thing of all, I think that what is emerging, I feel it like an earthquake underneath us, is it, must, it feels to me like we're in the middle of the Reformation, but people in the middle of the Reformation didn't know it. It was only afterwards, and they, they couldn't have imagined what was going to come. We're in the middle of that. It's like something is coming 
that completely rewrites the story of who we are. But what they knew in the moment, which is what we know, is everything's falling apart. Everything is right? falling apart and something new is emerging. Right. So the crumbling and, and that. And the, and the new can't emerge without the old breaking down. But it's so to turn a moment of fear and terror into a moment of exuberant hopefulness. And for me, I just turned 60 two weeks ago. Um, <laughs> you know, I realized that it's my work to do, but I'm not going to be here to see what comes. And that's okay. But we got a lot of work to do in these next uh, years, um, all of us together, even if we don't know where we're going. While the rains come, we'll move to some questions and, and um, hear from our audience. I'd like to start with a question for Dr. Jones. Do you think or have hope that the newfound interest in our, our heredity, the 23andMe and Ancestry.com, um, understanding from where we come, will call us to also understand our moral heredity. It's so interesting. So that was a question I thought you would probably get. <laughs> it's a great question. Yeah. Um, so what 23andMe and Ancestry.com and all of those do, <clears throat> I think in a positive way, is show us that, um, that we are a nation of mongrels. <laughs> it's a wonderful quote is that never has a nation of mongrels been more obsessed with purity. <laughs> so it gets rid of this notion of racial purity, although in some cases it confirms that people have pretty limited genetic difference. But you can take a million of those tests and it still does not address the stories that have constructed us, that have the moral core to them that drive how we behave. Um, so it may shift around a couple of things on the surface, but until we get at those deep stories of power, of, of, of genocide, of, of violence, um, but also the good stories of love and compassion and survival, those are the things that will move us forward, not knowing I have so much Neanderthal in me. Um. Thank you. Is grace relevant for the non-Christian? I would say absolutely. Um, and I would say that for two reasons. One, because I'm a universalist uh, in my Christian uh, notion of salvation. Um, the love of God, as I describe it that way, is true for everyone. It's not just, I'm not just describing a, a, a nice little added thing that you get if you happen to be a Christian who's confessed Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. It's true about humanity. Uh, but secondly, that I think this thing that I'm talking about that's emerging is really wrestling with the notion of love. And until we figure out what it means to love each other 
And until we decide that loving each other, our interconnectedness and our, our, our mutual implicatedness, we will not be able to move forward as a human species. And that love is grace. It is, it's not something you can do an experiment with and derive. It's something you actually have to claim as a truth, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary. How do you see the relationship between grace and fear, especially the fears that are so often the root of our divisions from one another, our prejudices from one another, and injustices we inflict on one another? Mm -hmm. So there's an absolute direct connection, and again, Having a fulsome notion of grace doesn't mean somehow fear automatically leaves your soul and you're never frightened again. Fear can also play a positive role. But if you fundamentally believe that in God ultimately, that your ultimate destiny is love, that that's the truest thing that can be said about you now and eternally, it, it dramatically impacts your fear of death, mm -hmm. um, your fear of the other. Uh, all of the things that were your fear of poverty, your fear of violence, your fear of what you don't understand, because how you work those things out matters profoundly in the here and now, but in the ultimate picture of our lives, love has the final word. And, and if, if one knows that they're loved like that, like hell, that there's a deep trust in that surrounding embrace of divine love. Fear no longer has the same grip. Its claws lessen their hold on your soul. We've talked a lot this week about reckoning. Is there a relationship between grace and reckoning? So grace is, is and again, here I'm very, sounding very traditionally Calvinist and Christian, but grace is God's reckoning with us, and it's already happened. It's already happened. God created us, and we are loved. Um, the reckonings that we are working out in our lives are many and multiple. We've been talking about them, but and whether we wake up to the grace that's already happened, God's reckoning, or we don't, um, determines how these reckonings of our human existence are going to play themselves out. Um, the, the thing I don't um, like about the term reckoning is it can have a, um, it can play into sort of old Christian notions of the reckoning that you must have or you're going to go to hell. Mm. So there's a sort of threat character to it. Reckoning, as I understand it, in a political and social context is, yes, we will go to hell, meaning we will continue to live in the hell that we've created if we don't reckon with the past. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So folks, this is a great time to stand up and stretch. <laughs> We're going to take five minutes to let this storm pass. Uh, giving you a little window into the magic of radio and television production. 
Um, and then we will continue with the conclusion of, of your conversation. So let's, let's practice the recreation in our pillar and stand up. Put your arms up. Offer peace to your neighbor. Okay, folks, 30 seconds. Finish your stretch and reassemble, please. Okay. Thank you for staying with us through the break. We're going to continue with two more questions and then hand it back to Krista to finish the conversation with what she promised us at the beginning. <laughs> Dr. Jones, our audience would like you to say a little bit more about your journey after discovering the history of your family in Oklahoma and how your theology informs your participation in combating racism and white supremacy today. And that, that's a, that, that answering that question could take hours. Um, but I, I do feel that in this book, um, one of my important roles as a person who has benefited from the legacies of white supremacy um, and who identifies as white is to uh, theologically and socially push white people to recognize this history, the constructedness of their own identity, and to give up this notion of liberal innocence so that we can get down to the hard work. One final question. A couple of weeks ago, we had the pleasure of spending time with Father Richard Rohr. And one of the things he said that week was that if you do not transform your pain, you will transmit it. And a member of our audience asked the question, how does mourning transform our grief into grace? So there, there's uh, so many uh, moments of pain and trauma um, in my own story. Um, and it, at one point, it became clear to me in my life as I was, uh, became most clear when I was going through a divorce and felt I had failed to keep my own covenants. How could I believe that God kept covenant with me? Um, and I was having a hard time forgiving um, the man I had been married to. And I realized that um, that hatred and, and the trauma and all of these things that we carry with us, we're not afraid to let go of them because there's, um, they're so uh, painful. We're actually afraid to let go of them because they become so comfortable. They become like, our injuries can be like warm blankets that we wrap around ourselves and our grief and our pain and our trauma. And they, they stop us if we wrap them tightly enough around ourselves from feeling vulnerable to the world. And I came to see that until I was willing to let go of those 
blankets of grief and fear and rage and anger and shame, that I actually couldn't experience the world. And for me, that letting go is a profound description of what forgiveness is, and that's the moment that one moves from grief into the transformative power of mourning um, in the context of having a future. You know, um, justice is an important word for you and also something that we could spend several hours speaking about. Um, do you want to just draw out, you, you talk about the temptation to scapegoating in this culture at this time, and um, you ask this question, and I just want you to elaborate a little bit on this. How can we articulate the justice of Jesus while not scapegoating, while loving and forgiving our enemies? That is an especially challenging question in a moment like this because there's a lot of self-righteousness all around <laughs> about the difference between us and those we might identify perhaps not as enemies, but as the people who are making us crazy. <laughs> um, at that particular um, part, um, I reflect on the fact that the most successful and sustained movements for social change in the 20th century have been driven by compassion and by love, and not by hatred and anger. Although hatred and anger is surely there for past wrongs. But um, again, the hatred and the anger, while it can be understandable, and while it can be honored for where it comes from and its, its rightness as a response to harm, um, makes you small um, and makes you hard because of the, the fear of vulnerability. But it's only going to be in that opening, that ability to be vulnerable and to not be afraid, that we're going to move forward together with mutual breath. Right. Right. Justice, if it becomes like a bludgeon that you use to say, oh, you're not you know, you're not justice-oriented enough, or, mm -hmm. and you, we can all name the list of all of the justice things. Um, it, it can stop the progress of justice. On the other hand, if you just give up on social justice, then you're not going to go anywhere. So it's that balancing act. How do you love, how do you do justice with love? I love the mm -hmm. saying that justice is what love looks like in public. As Cornell West, right? Yes, and he quotes others who said it before him. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, I think a lot about the many callings of being alive at this moment in time. And that, you know, there are some of the overt callings to justice, to work for justice. But what you just described, kind of coming back to a theological way of also stressing how important self-knowledge is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When people become 
hard and small, become paralyzed. Um, it's, actually, we, it's actually a nonsense thing to ask them to rise to their best, most generous humanity. And so some of the callings for those of us, even for whom justice is such an important call, are to be calmers of fear. I mean, I feel like, you know, the conversations we're having this week are directly related, like to, to become reflective together, to ask, to open up to questions. These all are very relevant to the work of evolving our humanity, to changing our society, to shifting our politics. And central to that is getting off your own self-righteous pedestal yeah. and, and, and recognizing that the, the flaws that you're wrestling with in everyone else live in you as well. And we could all use a little bit more humility um, if we want to move forward about our own failings. Yeah. And that changes the whole stage when you talk about your own brokenness rather than how you're right and the, and the people that make you crazy are wrong. Yeah. Um. Um, so I do want to circle around to love as we close. And it has, um, yeah, there's that quote, love. Well, I, want to, I actually want to... Um, read something. So this quote of James Baldwin, who's, one of, who's in your cloud of witnesses yeah. of theologians, um, I heard this quote, the first half of it, in the last year, and it really stunned me, and I'll read it to you now. And you, you, quote, you, you quote this in your book, too. Um, Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. So that's an incredible statement. But what you introduced me to is the, what he said next. Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. And then James Baldwin says, I use the word love here, not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, you see, you hear James Baldwin, the son of a preacher, um, and for him that, that, that love that he always saw and grasped for and had hope in, that he called that grace and what grace grasps is the thing that it's not just a given, it really is a gift. And it has political force, its quest, its daring, its exploration. And James Baldwin reminds us that if we give up that hope, that quest in love, then it, we've lost. And we can't afford that. Mm -hmm. And he never could afford that. And he never gave in to skepticism and cynicism and despair, even though he had every right in the world to do so. He's one of my heroes. You, you've actually said, um, as a quick way of talking, describing this moment we're in, we are in the midst of a political, spiritual love crisis. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Our masks are falling. 
we know we can't live in them anymore. Um, they're destroying us. Uh, but we haven't yet figured out what it means to live together without those masks. Mm -hmm. And that's where the quest, the daring, the exploration, that's where the bigness of love as the ultimate truth about the world and our lives has to be present. I believe that we can't do it on our own if we don't have that guiding force. Mm -hmm. It's, I think a lot about how the, the word love is also the most watered down word in the English language at the very same time that it is absolutely what can save us, yeah. right? I mean, love is a Subaru. <laughs> Um, so, so I want to, I think I want to ask you in closing, yeah, this, this, this love as a tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth that James Baldwin describes. Um, the love, you know, what did King say? I'm not talking about emotional bosh. I'm talking about a tough, demanding love. I wonder if you would just reflect on, and I know you walk through the world looking for this, and um, where do you see, you know, just talk to us about where you see that, what that looks like, how you're encountering it in the world today. Love made public. Well, I see it in so many places around our nation and around the world where communities are struggling together to improve collectively the conditions of their life, whether it be on the border um, or in Chicago, New York City, um, in Argentina or Yemen, um, love persists. And it's a remarkable, almost miraculous thing that love persists. I think that I have Absolute, I know you would argue with me about this because you think you have the best job in the world, but I think I have the best job in the world. Um, I'm also quite relieved, I should say as a side, that my Oki accent hasn't just gotten stronger because I'm sitting here with a fellow Oki. Um, but at Union Theological Seminary, I see a next generation of, of many of them young people, but of all ages, and many religious traditions, and some with no religious background, um, racially, sexual identity, just extremely diverse. And they're coming to seminary because they feel that earthquake too. And they believe in the future and that a better world is possible. And that that challenge of reaching it is a spiritual challenge. It's not just figuring out how to drill a new well. It's figuring out how to redefine what water is and why we need it and the sustenance. And so the fact that a place like Union is growing and thriving and people are showing up in the midst of this almost feels like sometimes shut down nation that's so embattled, they're showing up, walking through the doors, asking the big questions and still expecting, hoping, yearning for some kind of future and a wisp of an answer. Thank you, Serene Jones. <laughs>